You are listening to PIN America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing. And I am Jess Abalafia, Program Assistant for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, we speak with Tommy Trentino, author of Lock the Lock, which was published in 1974. Trentino survived nearly 40 years of incarceration, eight of which were on death row. He was released on his birthday, February 11th in 2001, and has continued to create for the past 20 plus years. I was introduced to Trentino by my colleague Jess, who works closely with him on his projects. Jess, can you give us more context about Trentino and his book? It's so weird hearing you call him Trentino because I just know him as Tommy. Um, But describing Tommy is so difficult because he is such a unique and special person. He is kind-hearted, very funny, extremely intelligent, insightful, and the most generous and giving person I've ever met in my life. We originally met when I took Dr. Michelle Tarter's English capstone course called Life Sentences, Literature of the Prison, which was during my undergrad at the College of New Jersey and I was randomly assigned to do a presentation about Tommy's memoir, and none of us knew that it would grow into so much more. Um, So each week I visit Tommy and we continue to work on creative projects together, and he just can't stop. Every time I go, there is always a new drawing or poem, and he mentions in Lock the Lock that when he started to read, he totally became free. And when he began to engage with creating visual art of all different mediums, He says, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that it felt good and I needed it. And Lock the Lock is a perfect example of this. I had the honor and privilege of visiting Tommy at his apartment and spending an afternoon speaking with him and Jess about his art and his time inside. It just so happens that our visit took place on February 28, 2023, which is the 60th anniversary of the day he was sentenced to death. This interview was more like a casual conversation. And once you hear Tommy speak, you'll understand why. He is a very sharp and funny 85-year-old who says he still has so much work to do. Because this interview took place on-site at his apartment, you'll hear some of what Tommy hears every day, such as the air conditioner turning on and off, and the faint sounds of his neighbors talking outside of his front door or just outside the window. This podcast is but about a third of the two-and-a-half-hour interview we did with Tommy, so Jess and I will provide context as needed. Any question, don't hesitate. Okay. <laughs> no, serious, serious. I, I don't get embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I, I want to reveal as much of me as I can, which is the opposite of how I was growing up uh-huh. uh, as a child, you know? Uh-huh. Everything was stuffed in, hidden, disguised, pretended. In other words, I was full of shit. <laughs> if I don't answer, I, I, I'll flip that on you. If I don't answer, she'll do it. Okay. I don't. If I don't answer the question fully or directly, uh-huh. redirect it because I want to answer anything. You okay. Know, that's, Why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Tommy Trantino. And, <laughs> and who are you? Endlessly. Who am I? I'm still trying to discover who I am. 
you know, it's an endless search, um, an infinite adventure. I'm very influenced by bop. You know about bebop yeah. mm-hmm. and rhythm and blues. I grew up loving music, and maybe that was my saving grace, you know, to keep me alive. And even though I was always depressed and down, so I am a multiplicity of things: complicated, complex, ridiculous, absurd, mm-hmm. smart, stupid, funny. I don't think I'm ever dull. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that about me, or I never thought of myself as dull. But um, never happy, really, truly happy. So I'm a composite of all of those things, but always developing and always trying to keep my mind open and reminding myself of that if I start closing mm-hmm. down in some yeah. way, narrowing my vision just to stay open to the world. I love life and I love living. Again, the opposite of my childhood, where I became disillusioned with the world, growing up in a tenement district that was half Jewish, half Italian. I didn't know who I was. People hated the Jews, people hated the Italians. I was both, you know? And uh, I was called a half-breed when I was a kid. Not denig- in a denigrating way, mm-hmm. uh, but I felt different. Always the outsider, you know. But I always wanted to be part of everybody, you know. I like to entertain. I didn't think of myself as an entertainer, but when I look back, I just loved to make people laugh. That was a, a joy to me. And I would do anything. I wouldn't wear a lampshade yeah. on my head or something. But if a call for being ridiculous, I would mm-hmm. answer the call. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write or draw then? No. When did that I, start for I, you? I just recently was writing when I started kindergarten on the wall behind the teacher. There were 26 white cards with uh, letters uppercase and lowercase in longhand. And I loved the way it looked. We We didn't have typewritten, you know, yeah. that stuff. I, and the print was in newspapers, but I didn't read that stuff. But that's attracted me. I used to try to copy it uh, down, you know, and I turned them into doodles sometimes. They were just, it was just beautiful. But the writing didn't start actually till the death house. When I was in Comstock before that, I was in prison before, I, mm-hmm. I think, and the book, the book, I gotta reread my book sometimes. <laughs> um, I, I stopped reading comics and started reading books. I was able to read. Mm-hmm. I was. I didn't like in school. I didn't have to study or anything. The tests were stupid to me. They, were, they were so easy. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I, so I never studied or anything. But I used to read comics like Dick Tracy. Uh, yeah. Little Laughter, uh-huh. Superman, you know, all of Dagwood and Bumps and Dagwood and Blondie, these dumb things, you know. And but when I went to and the, uh, the sports section of the New York Daily News and New York Daily Mirror, which were the proletariat's newspapers, uh-huh. 
You know, if you were educated, you read the Times. Uh, I don't know if Wall Street Journal was even around then. So, but anyway, in Comstock, I began to read and fell in love with reading. We've recently been talking about some of the poetry, 16th century poetry. Rhythm and blues made a, a difference in me and changed a direction I was going in. Yeah. I, I was a drug addict, you know, but like it was just different than the music I had been listening to. It was all radio. You know, we didn't have anything else. That was when you time. were inside? This was in Williamsburg. Oh, okay. When you were growing, growing up. up. Growing up, okay. Growing up, yeah. And, um, and, and so through that, I discovered other kinds of music, other things that, like, gave me a different rhythm. Gave me a rhythm in my life, but I didn't take it anywhere. You know, the drugs. Until you got to Comstock. Comstock. I, I didn't write in Comstock, but I read prodigiously. What did you read? But fiction, nonfiction, but a lot of poetry. She was doing something for class the other day. I wandered lonely as a cloud. William Wordsworth. I, I remember, you know, it came back to me. I mean, and, but what it did was stimulate me to do other reading. And I just read. I, go, I didn't know what to read. I had no... I've never been organized to this day. I'm not organized. <laughs> you can see I am Mr. Disorganized, uh, number one. But it just stayed in me. I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. Everybody was like me in the prison. They all, everybody wanted to be a gangster, a tough guy. They, everybody was full of shit, you know. But nobody admitted it, you know. You kept on pretending, and it's reinforced when you're in the group like anything uh -huh. else, you know. So um, by the time I got out, I didn't do any reading when I got out. I was out a relatively short time, as you know, maybe a little more than a year or so. And then I got arrested for uh, the murder and mm -hmm. convicted and sent to the death house. And that's when the end became a beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, Godard once said, Every story has a beginning, middle, and end, but not necessarily in that order. So the death house is the end, but it's a beginning. Yeah. But that goes on endlessly in life, because life is ever-changing. That's the only thing that is inevitable, change, you know? Yeah. And so my first day in the death house, a death house guard, now, in context, prior, after I got arrested, until the time I got in the death house, I'm in the media every day. Cops are scared to death of me. Like, when we're going in the elevator to go to court for any reason, the elevator is filled with cops and me in the middle, but everybody's facing me. As we're going down to the courtroom down in the basement, these cops are just like staring at me. So there's all of this, um, a pariah, you name it, I'm just, everybody's scared of me, hates me. Prisoners love me for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, cop killer. Especially going back then, it wasn't, now it's, it happens 
yeah. pretty often, unfortunately, mm -hmm. right? So that was like so far out. But administrators of prison, jails, guards, cops, I was public enemy number one. And I'm trying to get a make of what's going on. It's a six foot by nine foot cell. And all it has is a World War II army cot, uh, a sink and toilet combination, which was made of porcelain back then. They didn't mm -hmm. have stainless steel, anything. And uh, three walls and no light fixtures in the cell, so it's dark. And in between every two cells, there were 60 watt light bulbs. This is the death house. This okay. is the death house. And where is the death house? In Trenton State Prison. Trenton State Prison. I'm traumatized. I don't know I'm traumatized, but, I, you know, looking back, just messed up as I, I could be. I, I just do what I always did, the old habits and jail habits, is stop pacing myself, you know? And I just collapsed on the ground and started sobbing. And I said, God, forgive me for everything I've done wrong, for all the harm I've done. I don't remember the exact words, yeah. but that's where it was. I, I didn't know why I was doing it. This was just happening. And I said, I forgive everybody who's ever harmed me because I used to have deep resentments. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm mindful of that to this day, to not be resentful or judgmental, you know, mm -hmm. which it's going to come out in some way, sometime, yeah. but I catch it now, then it was just part of my mm -hmm. existence, you know? And I promise, I vow to God, I never use drugs again, I'll never hurt or harm anyone again, and I'll try to help people not hurt them. And I'm telling you, I was liberated. Mm. From that moment on, I was free in that it's, that's where my freedom started. So I got up, started pacing again. Here comes old man Jack. Now, old man Jack, <laughs> I wish, oh God, his shirt's a little bit out of his pants. His tie is not made right. You know, he's in uniform, uniform. blue uniform of, of, of the guards. And he's got this, his glasses are hanging over here, you know, he looks down at you over the glasses, graying hair, losing his hair, a little disheveled. But he wasn't like dirty or anything. He was just loose as a goose. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he must have been in the 60s. And I found out later he w had started as a guard in the death house when uh, Bruno Hotman was there. That's the guy who was convicted of killing Lindbergh's baby. And uh, he told me that he was in this cell. I said, I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, he starts saying, uh, can I get you something to eat? I said, eat? I never, I'm not last thing in my mind. He says, eat, you'll feel better. And that's what Jewish people used to tell their kids. Put something in your mouth. I'm not hungry, ma. Put something in your mouth. You should feel better. But believe me, he was no old Jewish lady. Uh, <laughs> he had this deep, raspy voice. And it, 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 like, 
thinking back, I, I could hear all of that. I picture it now. It was wonderful, but at the moment, I was, I was not ready for any of this. Mm-hmm. He walks away. He comes back a short time later. Comes with the tray. I said, oh, Jesus. It was smashed potatoes with string beans and meatloaf with a little gravy on it and bread that was supposed to be raisins, but they were cockroaches. <laughs> that, uh, because, the, the vermin in there, there was yeah. rats coming up out of the toilet. I didn't oh, know that then. Okay. But I looked at this, I said, oh man, I, this, and it didn't smell good, you know? I, I thought he was gonna walk away, I, and then I'll flush it in the toilet. He got his foot up on the bars and he's leaning there. <laughs> he's just waiting for me to eat. So I just ate the thing to make him feel better. And, um, I mean, it wasn't like I was eating vomit or anything like that, but it wasn't like something you might call it. It wasn't (laughs) prison food, which is miserable. And so we're talking, and he he says, You gotta have perseverance. He was telling me like other little stories. The guys in here, all right, all convicted murderers. And he says they're all nice guys. So, but it's revealing about him how he was as a person. But he, he was. I found out later, a, a fighter and everything. Mm-hmm. He was a tough man, but he had a really good heart, yeah. you know. And he didn't like the death penalty. And you know, he's at the end of his career, I guess. And whatever and so anyway he's uh, he says gotta have perseverance you know after he's telling me some of these stories about Lindbergh and everything I mean later on it was really fascinating stuff about him and what he's doing but at the time I'm saying what the man let me be in my head but I was not again I don't want to disrespect him so he says, you got to have perseverance. I said, never heard the word. I never heard perseverance. And I told him, he says, I'll, I'll tell you a story that'll explain what perseverance is. And he tells me a story about this little mouse that falls down into a barrel. Uh, do you want the whole story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It falls into this big dark barrel, hits the bottom, looks around, he says, there's no way out, I'm going to die in there, he looks, he tries to run up the sides, he slips back down, it turns out there was a little layer of uh, cream on covering the whole bottom of the barrel, and the mouse just looking around and sits down, starts crying and wailing, uh, I'm never getting out of here, I'm going to died, blaming the world for all his problems, you know, and all of that. And then he said, the mouse gets up and starts to run around. Kept running around, running around, and the more he ran around in the barrel, the more he churned up the cream, and it kept rising and rising. He kept running, he got tired, he learned to rest on the run, and he just kept going and going and going until he got to the top, and he jumped off and he was free. Wow. And he says, you could be like that mouse if you had perseverance. 
the mouse had perseverance. He kept going, no matter how hard things were, how world was against them or that or whatever. It's on you. If you keep going, you're going to get there. And he walked away. It, it was transforming. Because mm-hmm. I had always felt sorry for myself. I play, he didn't know that. I, I guess he told the same story to everybody. I never asked anybody. But um, it, it, it was probably to encourage, don't give up. There's always hope. But it was the experience of someone taking time out of their life especially at that moment in time for me that was transformative. I've had many, many experiences like that in my life, but that was one of the deepest and really the first which helped me to persevere while I was in the death house. And I mean, I was lit up. It's hard to explain from, I'm in that small cell, I'm on fire. You know, you can't go anywhere, yeah. but my head is traveling. I think there's a million Tommy, things. why don't you share the story now? That was, so Old Man Jack was one story of transformation. Now talk a little bit about the hunger strike when you were put in the hole and then saw all the shadows and how that transformed oh, into your okay. artwork. All right. Is that how you started making art? Mm-hmm. In oh, the hole. Yeah. All right. So in the death house... Rats would come leaping up out of your toilet bowl, mm-hmm. running around a cell, there's vermin all over, you have no light in the cell. There was no recreation. You had to remain in your cell 24-7 until you were executed. The electric chair was 100 feet away from my cell, uh, behind the execution mm-hmm. chamber door. So all of the cells in the death house, the chair was in there with the cells. Yeah. It was so the, part. It oh, was part wow. of the death house. It was like a strip. You know that, like in a lot of other places, I, I learned later, and you yeah. must know, they take you to another area of the yeah. prison. This, the death house, was a shoebox-shaped building of two stories with the skylight on mm-hmm. it in a very secure area away from everything else in the prison. No one could go near it except guards assigned to it. They had to get a key from a tower. The security was beyond belief in that. And that's why they didn't allow recreation. Because the law said you must remain in solitary confinement. So that's a single cell that you're in until death do part. You know, once a week you could come out for a shower for 10 minutes, which the shower was a cell at the end of the tier right next to the execution chamber door. You had a small state towel Mm -hmm. and a bar of brown soap. They would send in six cops from the general prison population to help supervise it. It was one man at a time. You would come out of your cell and you were supposed to just walk down to the shower that escorted by these guards and take the shower. So when I first went there, I was complying. Then I said, what the, man, I got these guys, you know, you're shouting out of yourself. I'm going to stop and say something. I put the towel 
like a cape, Superman cape. That's where reading comics came in. I put on my Superman, took off my Clark Kent suit, my, my prison browns. And I mean, I, I wasn't really wanting to mess with the cops. I was messing with the rules that were stupid, mm-hmm. made no sense, you know? So anyway, that chamber door had like a peephole. Mm-hmm. I, you're not supposed to do this either. I would push the peephole aside, peep it at the chair, said, you ain't going to get me. I was saying some trash, you know. With the guards there? Yeah. The, I was there entertainment. They were laughing. Oh, the guards let you do that. Well, they didn't stop. They didn't know they what didn't. I was going to do. They, they wouldn't rush me or anything. Yeah. Tommy, now talk about how all those conditions led to the strike and then the whole. So as time got on, at first, I wasn't talking to anybody. Uh, I got notes telling me, don't talk to this guy, don't talk to that guy, he's no good. And I would shout out. I said, what's so bad about this? Busted him out. You know? <laughs> I would laugh. There was a Muslim brother in the cell right next to me. I didn't know anything about him at the time. And he would laugh when I would do that. Mm-hmm. He later became a member of the Black Liberation Army, a powerful, powerful brother, man. I, I didn't talk out of my cell much, but my next door uh, neighbor, uh-huh. old man Leo, he told me stories like about a guy who had his head chopped off oh. by the guillotine, and the head looked up and said, I'm innocent. And I explained to him that that's impossible. <laughs> and he stopped talking to me. So, uh, but he's an old man, you know. And so I started looking at everybody, like in my head here. You know, you're learning about I used to listen a lot when mm-hmm. guys talk. And sometimes, you know, it'd be very revealing who they really were. And I felt Jack was right, you know. Everybody in here was basically at heart, even yeah. though they might have done some bad things, yeah. you know. So us finding the good in people and come up with the idea, what can we do? You know, to what better kind the of conditions. protest is, there's nothing. Well, we had, the warden used to come in, we used to say about the yard or this or that. He once actually said, hope springs eternal. <laughs> but um, they really couldn't do anything. It was controlled by the law mm-hmm. and the politicians administrating the law, the Attorney General's office right. specifically. And so we, we tried all of that and nothing is happening. We want food, our mail is censored. Everything you could think of, the, the conditions with the filth and all, every, everything. So, come up with the idea that they have to keep us alive. The law says they have to keep us, that's why mm. there's all the security. They used to come around every half hour, hour, uh, check your bars and look in and see if you're okay. If, if you were in the back of your cell, they want to hear you say something. You know, so I said, they, they got to keep us alive. Let's go on a hunger strike to the death. 
sore guys. <laughs> this didn't attract everybody. So I figured, all right, let's have a list of demands. Send in notes around. the cops too. There was no toilet for the cops other than a toilet bowl right not far from the entrance mm -hmm. and there was a toilet bowl right in front of my cell. I was in one cell and the cop has to take a shit or something. He's sitting down there. Biachi has got Biachi. <laughs> we cut, every morning he had it. They, everybody had their routines. Now, you come in, first thing they got to do is make their rounds. He'd take off his hat, loosen his tie, loosen his shirt, get a cup of cold coffee and leftover toast. It was leftover oh. from breakfast. And go take a crack. Eating the toast oh and drinking the coffee and talking to me. <laughs> I'm trying to like go in the back of my cell. You know, I want him to have privacy or something. And he's telling me about he had these choo-choo trains and all this, <laughs> everything. Just a really nice person, you know. But, all right. So, I told the cops, you're in here 24 hours a day. It's a miserable job, you know. We want to make things better. So they had no problem passing these notes around that we would write to one another. Oh, so they helped you? Yeah. yeah. That, that yeah. was going to be my question. Like, how did you pass notes yeah. if you couldn't be outside? Yeah. They facilitated yeah. it. Yeah, the, the cops. Were, now, you could have passed it down the line, you know, but this was easy. A hey, uh, mug mugs. Give this to Smitty. Give this to Jimmy. Uh, you know. <laughs> that, they're probably reading it or not. Whatever, you know. So, but anyway... We'll make a list of demands. What would you want? A guy wanted shoelaces. We we were not allowed to have shoelaces. He wanted shoelaces. And then, you know, little things. But, like, that's what guys were thinking about. Yeah. Like I said, a chair. In my whole prison experience, I wanted a comfortable chair when I went home. I wanted a comb, you know, little stuff. Of course, like food packages with better food. Everybody was together now, but they were a little afraid to do it. But I figured this would be a stimulus to, to, to let's get down with this. I did it by myself. They threw me in a hole. and You did the uh, hunger strike by yourself? Huh? You did the hunger strike by yourself. Uh, well, I, I I would go. I was thrown in the hole for other things, okay. and and the guys would be very uh, scared, you know, uh, because first of all, they said you can't leave yourself. Yeah. And they were taking me out. Twenty cops would come and say, "Come, boop boop," and put me in the hole, and. It was also dark, but it was a little bigger. You had just a stone slab. That was your mattress and the same uh. ugly conditions. But there was like shadowy light that was able to come in probably from the outside door. Mm -hmm. And I see all these cracks on the ceiling and the walls and the floors that it was like the letters, I think. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. like they just oh, like the letters in school mm -hmm. that were on the wall. Yeah, like like when I was a kid. Yeah, the letters had a beautiful shapes to them, designs to them. They were not just the letters. Mm -hmm. 
And now here, I used to see all, which I'm still doing them. Yeah. Like these different creatures, things that I was just loved it. I didn't love being in there and it was all painful and that, but I loved it. It was like, I've never, like it just, my brain opened up to stuff. Later on, I mean, when I started drawing more, I would like these images or representations of these images that I was stimulate with, stimulated with, I, w I would draw. Mm -hmm. All right, back to the hunger strike. We finally go on the hunger strike. We tell the authorities, the, the cops and everybody, there's a list of our demands, the warden comes in, the whole thing. They wanted me to be a spokesman. <laughs> Somebody's gonna get in trouble. <laughs> Give it to him. But no, but they wanted me uh, to, to be a spokesperson because there was also complete silence. Everybody, nobody was gonna eat anything. Mm -hmm. And we were gonna go into total silence, which really created tension for yeah. the cops or when the warden and they would come in with all the brass and all of that. They would feel it, you know. Shortly after that, here they come. Take me to the hole. They figure if the leader I'm was the so gone, so called then... leader and uh, the mouth of the mob, and the guys will capitulate. I'm maintaining. I'm not taking the bread and water. Nothing. Anyway, they come and they let me out. I come back. Everybody, I get notes right away. That son of a that guy there, he started. We were afraid they're going to kill you, so we we asked them to let you out. We'd start eating if they let you out. So the hunger strike. You came back, and that was over. But when you were in the hole, that's when you. Oh saw yeah, no, hunger. I was like, it was just the eighteen guys who were there. But about after I was there, four years, I was there under a death sentence for eight years. About the fourth year, they were sentencing more people to death now, and they needed more room because mm -hmm. they couldn't double the cells by law. So what they did is they moved us out of the death house to a wing inside the prison and secured that whole wing, but it was much larger and there were big windows. So it was bright light in there. The cells had lights. Inside the cells. Inside the cells. There were showers there that a number of people could take showers at the same time and they were allowing guys to go out to the yard for an hour, about six guys at one time. Now, I was starting to let my hair grow, and it was... Kind of like how you are in the, the back yeah. of this, yeah. the back that's, of the book? That's cut already. Oh, this my one is hair, cut. I had the first afro. <laughs> in, 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 I, I, you know, they didn't call them afros then. Yeah. I just was letting it go. A you natural. know, I didn't comb it. The cops used to ask me, how you comb your hair? You stick your finger in the light socket? <laughs> it was all over. 
and I would fluff it, you know, all of that. And but everybody else took haircuts, and I was actually given charges for that. And because yeah, he refused yeah. haircuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I was not permitted out in the yard. Mm. By the time the death penalty was overturned, everybody had to be released into the general prison population. Yeah. I was pl- taken to the kangaroo court, and they told me to cut my hair. It was a prison rule. Cops had to cut their hair, too. Mm. Prisoners, cops, couldn't have facial hair. You couldn't have sideburns. Your hair had to be like the old GIs. Yeah, you like know? a crew cut, kind of. Yeah, it must have been like World War Two vets who made up these rules. You know, this is what we did, this is what you do. Yeah. But so even the cops hated it, you know? But guys had seen me when they were walking me through the prison to, to the kangaroo court and mm-hmm. then to ADSEG. And boy, they said, you see his hair, see his hair. The hair like really lit them up. Cops, prisoners, little by little, little sideburns maybe, a little mustache, a little facial hair, and all of that, letting the hair grow maybe a little longer, the rule change. Because you were the first one to just say yeah. no. But this has given me, I didn't think of myself as a leader or an organizer. I used to be like head of a gang and what they call gangs. We called it a social club, yeah. you know? And I didn't think of that. It was just somebody's got this job, somebody got that job. Uh, you call the shots and stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't for anything except fighting and women and getting drunk and all of that stuff, yeah. you know, and wearing your colors, keeping people out from uh, who lived a block away and <laughs> couldn't walk over here. It's crazy stuff. But now I'm actually learning, like, what is making people tick? Because I wanted to change things. The vow I made, I didn't like make it in detail. I didn't write anything down about it. You know, it just was something that was happening to me and I was trying to make happen outside of me, you know. And uh, when I got out, of course, everybody knew who I was because of the media, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was on TV all the time, in newspapers all the time, and it was whole mythology about me that to this day is really bugs the heck out of me, you know, yeah. some of the things they were saying about who I was and, and stuff. But anyway, the seeds were planted in me on how change could take place even inside a prison. So the is this the time when you started writing Lock the Lock? When did uh, you start writing Lock the Lock? I didn't I didn't start writing Lock the Lock, as you know. I, I just, Lock the Lock is a compilation of writings that were put together. My former wife was very instrumental in that. Abby Hoffman was the most instrumental. Uh, Len Mindless had some, because they, they were trying to raise money for my defense. I have a little book where they took some of the things I had written, some of my drawings, and sent it around to very famous people mm. at, that Abby was contacting. Abby was your lawyer? 
Abby no, Abby Hoffman, this is. My, my lawyer at the time was Len Weinblatt. Your lawyer was Abby Hoffman was this revolutionary of extreme proportions, but he did it differently. He was bringing all the youth culture in. That was his aim. He was a psychologist, too. I mean, he oh, knew wow. what he was doing and how to do it. Drugs, sex, anti-authority, he knew, tune in, whatever it was, they, the yippies were doing it, but he was like the face and... He was like curating it all. He was, he was the curator's curator. You know? <laughs> so talk a little more about the artistic process, how La the Law came to be. So they put that together and passed it around and famous people from the academic world, from the art world, writers, you name it. I was, I didn't feel right about this. And I said, what the heck? But anyway, Bantam became interested and then Knopf. Mm -hmm. And they said, they'd like me to write about the murder, which became the angel, the section called the angel yeah. in the book. I did that in one sitting. I forget how many pages, whatever it was. It's like in the middle of the book, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, He wrote that last. It's also a different page texture. Mm -hmm. Like it's a noticeable. You can tell that it was yes. written for yeah. a purpose. Like oh, they yeah. asked you to do yeah. this because this and, is the only book. Uh, Wrote it. Uh, now, I had learned English grammar and all of that, but I felt and actually believed that this was part of a way that the capitalists mm -hmm. <laughs> oppressed people, mm -hmm. that kept them in line by making them think a certain way, act a certain way, and they called the shots, they made the rules, and all that. I, I equated that. So this was my protest against that. But I had learned grammar, but I didn't use it. Your protest was not using punctuation? But my protest was that not using punctuation or grammar and inventing words because, in my way, mm -hmm. I was protesting what I thought was a way that people's minds were being controlled and manipulated to stay mm -hmm. in your place and not go against those who made the rules. Right. You know, I always had, like, I was anti-capitalist to the bone, yeah. you know. Uh, so, but again, that's why I wrote the way I did. Now, sometimes I would use all capitalization, yeah. you know, uh, you know, whatever, I, with, without, but I was doing it my way, not the way you're supposed to. I learned later, I mean, I had no intention of writing a book. It happened as I'm describing yeah. it. I, it. It was like a, an amazing thing to me, more amazing to me than anybody else, but that's what the other artists and writers, they that's what they loved yeah. about it. That I was not being like them, mm -hmm. you know, writing for commercial success. Well, all of them were not that commercial, yeah. but that's, you wrote for sale to, to monetize mm -hmm. your, your art or you painted for that mostly. 
uh, some artists and writers didn't, and that's what they called the starving artists. <laughs> you know, but they didn't have a political um, edge to it. That's what made me feel good that they appreciated that and had a regard for me and stepped over the line to to say it publicly when, as others have said, the whole world was against me, three branches branches of government were trying to ice me, all of that stuff. So uh, the book became published after uh, Abby shared some of my letters with some of the people who were helping the defense. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were in the publishing world, and someone saw that, brought it to Bantam, and then Knopf got involved. And it was their idea to come to me to, to do the book. Mm-hmm. And, but the book, except for The Angel, uh-huh. was basically done. It was just writings that you had done throughout the years that you just that, put together. Yeah, mm-hmm. and... Um, I think most of it was done pretty close together. But I I didn't sit down and say, this is going to be a book, this is a memoir, this is an autobiography. I was just writing about something. I was like, like in the book, there's the young man who died in the death house. Mm -hmm. I wrote about that. All, All the things I wrote about, I didn't exactly always write about at the time they happened. Like even now, things came back. Like it, even just this morning, today's February 28th, and that whole line leading to the death house came back to me, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, I, I don't write. This is the only time I'm writing with a purpose, mm. and the purpose is shared. And so what was that purpose? At the time? At that time? What were you writing for? Uh, I had to get things out. I, I, I just had to say or do what I was doing, my behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I looked at everything in a political uh, light, yeah. you know, I just felt compelled to do it because of the vow I had made. I didn't sit down every day and say, oh, we made a vow. And you got to do this or that. But that's what was like the fire inside of me all the time. How could I do things not to give back? A lot of people have asked me about that. Was this your way of giving back for the wrongs you did? I didn't want to repeat those wrongs, but I always wanted to do right. I wanted to keep the focus on doing something that would improve whether it was an individual, a group, hopefully the world. Yeah. I was a dreamer in some sense, but um, I, it was a living dream. It still is. I mean, it'll be with me as long as I live. I'm not done yet. You know, I'm, I'm still... I went to the doctor the other day and they gave me bad doctor stuff. I'm not done yet. That the line that came to me, you both know poetry, is uh, Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost. Mm-hmm. It was always one of my favorite poems. And 
the last lines are, uh, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep mm. and miles to go before yeah. I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. And that's just, that's what mm. is in me now. I got medication, got more tests, and blah, blah, your heart is this, and blockages, knockages. uh, I got things to do and that's where I keep my focus that's what I learned and the writing and the art is part part of that you know just to keep doing it but it's not just your words it's your deeds you know and uh, they should or I try to make them work uh, conjointly you know Mm. But as I said, I'm a living contradiction, so I don't always do. (laughs) (laughs) So are you still writing now? Yeah. Blame her. (laughs) So what are you writing now? Uh, I'm writing... Basically, I'm asked to write some things, but once I start... It goes a whole different direction. she She reads it. Michelle reads it, but she's the boss. Jess is the boss. Jess, Jess is the boss. <laughs> she reads it, says, that's it. Leave it. Don't touch it. That sounds like Jess. Okay. I removed <laughs> access to the document so we can't go on it. And I touch it. And he still touches so it. So I'm writing about my childhood. I'm mm. writing about different things in my life. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, Whatever emerges from that, that's, I just keep writing from that. One thing suggests another. And like I said before, I really love the quote by Gadan because what is the beginning? What is an end? Where is it all? Like, look at the, the universe we live in. This yeah. universe is before, beyond the universe. Everything is infinite and changing all the time. And I want to be that change. That's it. Changes everything to me. Do you remember the first drawing you did? No. When you I were inside? Remember, I remember. No, that's. The Picasso? The, he's saying the first. Yeah, but that was one of the start. That was one uh, from the beginning. No. No? So there were other drawings and stuff? No. But this no. was just the first no, one you I, did. With I, I know that because that is a rarity. I had looked at art books. I had never gone at that time. I went to museums when I came home mm-hmm. from prison, museum of mine, or, or as many places as possible. But as you could see, I don't do representative art. There's a million artists that I love. Yeah. And they didn't have to be have a paintbrush or a pen. It could be writing or somebody talking. Everybody is an artist. A living artist, they just don't know it, some mm. people. So that painting, I was in the death house, and the painting just like moved me so much. It was like an old person, he was facing the other way. And I don't even remember now in the painting, the actual Picasso painting, if there was like a window with a sky out there. Mm. And that was like one of the first times, that might have been the first thing, where I was seeing the outside world 
but I'm sad. Mm. But it is a copy, not exactly, but a copy of Picasso's painting. I forgot yeah. the title of it. It's one of the few things. I did another one that was even more lifelike. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, God, I got to stop this. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but it made me understand why people do it. Like I, I love Vermeer. I love artists who uh, just could get every did that did in reality. Mm-hmm. But to me now, you have cameras, you have all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, but anyway but that the first paintings were totally Uh non-representative I have that black painting remember Uh I told you and um, I think it would be more like drawings like that that are in that drawing there Mm -hmm. like which is in my book that, that one there and the other, the other one there also was a, a lot of these are from the death house. Uh, you did them while you were in the death house. Were done in the death house. Some were subsequent, but I, I can't remember the actual first thing I drew, because in a way they were like doodles to me, because yeah. I would just lay down a line and another line. Sometimes I try to do it without taking my hand off the page oh, wow. if I was drawing. Yeah. I preferred the drawing to the painting. A lot of them were self-portraits or portraits of guys who were in the death house with me as I saw them by how they talked and all of that. Uh, the police, as the police chief says, he does ugly painting. <laughs> They're ugly. I agree. They're supposed to be ugly, yes, dummy. <laughs> Tommy, why don't you talk a little bit about the materials you used in your artwork? I would have, like, fingernails, hair, little things, and my blood. That one, the black one, has my blood in it. That, I remember, was in there. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes I use my hand, but we did have brushes as time went on. Uh, I, w- I would use almost anything to try to use. You could have paint? It was interesting how we got to have paint. Okay. Uh, there was a chaplain who would come into the death house once a week. Wonderful guy. Stop at every cell. He didn't like try to like mm. push anything on you. But he would bring in little things, like maybe cookies or something like that. And he would ask me, can I get you anything? i say, no, thank you. And one of the guys had asked for a number painting set, you know, like... You get Paint by oh, yeah, yeah. And I can never forget it. Hey, come! That's compadre. Yeah, what? He says, I got this thing here. I ain't going to use it. I, I'm going to send it up with one of the cops. I said, all right. I looked at it. And I started doing that. I said, I don't want to paint inside a line. I, that's how I started painting. There was like, I painted it. Whatever I had there, I just painted on it using this stupid numbers paint. Yeah. That, <laughs> that was there. That was for five-year-olds. But I enjoyed it. This was enjoyable. To me, you know, so I guess that that was 
my first material. And then I would use anything. As time went on, though, we couldn't get oil paint or anything like that mm. because you would need chemicals and yeah. stuff. But they allowed acrylics in, in the tube. Because uh, you couldn't have glass in the death house. Uh, and um, paintbrushes. And that's how I started. My mother and father would get me stuff, order stuff. And then I started painting, like on poster boards. About 18 by 24, we would get things like that. And small things, too. You know, I prefer small things because it was there was no place to go here and yeah. I just my bed was my easel you know that was it and um, and it just emerged from there you know it just whatever uh, it's something by accident like these things mm. were happening by accident my former wife when I met her she used to go nuts she sending me in this good canvas and Good quality paper <laughs> and stuff. I'm drawing on a paper bag, and <laughs> toilet paper, and, uh, and stuff like that. She went crazy, you know. And then my father and mother come to visit me. You, you check it out. You give it to the cop. They bring it to the mail room. And when your family comes up, they pick it up for the visit. And um, my father would come back the next week. He said, "Hey, where's the picture?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, there ain't no picture pie. <laughs> so, but that, that's how it started. It emerged from that. It's, this was in the 70s. This is in 1972. When the book oh. was published, this, mm. this happened. So one part of the interview we had to leave out was Tommy discussing how several producers approached him over the years while he was incarcerated to make films about his life. He turned them all down except for one, which would have included a high-profile Hollywood casting crew. Meryl Sleep Street is going to play my wife. Al Pacino is going to play me. Sidney Pollack is going to direct. He's going to write and produce it. His name was David Sontag. Tommy turned down many of the movie offers he received because the producers were invested in presenting inauthentic narratives about his past and his time behind bars. However, he did receive another movie offer that he became interested in after People magazine published a feature about him and his wife. Tommy ended up accepting this offer due to the encouragement of his loved ones. And once he learned that the producer was committed to creating a genuine portrayal of his life. The producer wanted to end the movie with Tommy's release, which he was fighting for in court. But after being denied parole once again, the likelihood of Tommy getting out did not seem promising. And the producer refused to write an ending that was untrue to Tommy's story. So the movie deal eventually fell through. Okay, now let's get back to Tommy talking about amassing his art over the years. Uh but as far as uh, dedication and commitment to getting this done, they call it my legacy. I, I never thought of such a term. Mm -hmm. Just like I never thought of publishing books or anything like that. Oh, yeah. But uh, I understand f 
as they've explained it more mm -hmm. and demonstrated by their own actions yeah. uh, the importance of it because I don't look at it and I know they don't at the bottom of it mm -hmm. really look it's not me it's others not just like me but a representation of others who come yeah. from the world I came from and have made a little difference mm -hmm. in that world and like Jack story to me about perseverance all goes back to Jack, yeah. <laughs> back to but Jack. you know I'm, I've been here for like two hours and I've already in my mind seen like five different book projects like that's I, what he said the collection he goes there's nine books he says it all the time he goes there's nine books that's what I tell her I, like it, yeah. there's so much here like this even life, like, like I, I had a Charlie kept a lot of my stuff mm -hmm. and I'm glad she did because we got it I had some stuff. I threw away tons of stuff. Oh, yeah. She told me, don't throw anything away. <laughs> don't throw anything away. But even going through it now, and after like what they're saying, what we're working on now, I'm seeing writings, like I, I have this notes whole about of writings movie. that he um, did you know, in prison. He didn't know he had. This is with him already, or this is at that Charlie said? No, no, this was all with him. Oh. And these are like writings, drawings, letters that were just in bins. I'm pulling out stories from just what he's talking to me about. And he's already written some of these stories. And, and they were living here all along and we had no idea <laughs> until we went through the bins. So Tommy was moved around so many different facilities and he made change wherever he went. And this was a way to kind of document that change, oh, that legacy, change, yeah. you know. At this point in the interview, Tommy gets up to look for a VHS recording of a documentary featuring writer and artist Irving Stettner, who edited a journal called Stroker, of which Tommy was a regular contributor. He comes back and talks a little bit about the book design and production of Lock the Lock. A few more questions. Okay, so I'm going to sit You down. can stand if you want. Or you want to sit in this chair, it's more comfortable. No, it's not. It's just sitting down. All right, you can stand. No, it's okay. Never stand when people are sitting down. All right, I want me to stand, I'll stand. Wait a minute. Am I sitting? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, what was it like the first time you saw and held your book? What was it like seeing your book for the first time? I can't tell you the truth. I was not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm saying, I didn't, like, pick the cover or the back cover. Mm. Uh, I, I, they must have did it by committee. And so, but, I, again, like, with that drawing, why, why that drawing? But people like it. it feel, this one? It, the cover? But it is more me. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not yelling. It looks like, does it look like I'm yelling? That's the, well, it looks like you're talking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, there's my hair. After the haircut, mm -hmm. I agreed to get my haircut 
for Charlie's sake. Okay. Uh, because they would transfer me to another prison mm-hmm. where there was contact visits. Oh, okay. I was starting to almost be a good boy. That's something, like I keep saying. After this know, book came out. Yeah. Well, since I was a little kid, my mother used to say, listen, be a good boy. Always be a good boy. And you're not normal. Try to act normal. <laughs> <laughs> So, but anyway, uh, I did like, I like the design. Uh-huh. Th- those are things that attract me very much. I like the way they designed it. And actually, I, I'm, I'm just giving like little silly stuff. I, I did like it. And uh, it, it, it's hard, like, to me, it just is what it is. It came from a long place. And look at, it's not Came just me. Yeah. There's so many other people involved, just mm-hmm. like now. I'm writing something, yes, and, and but there's others who are part of what you're creating, you know? Yeah. Without the long line of people who help you, you don't do anything by yourself. And so that star thing, that, that, that's what I don't like mm-hmm. about this stuff. I used to call it going Hollywood, oh, you know, uh-huh. and, and stuff. Now I go to Hollywood, uh, the walk will do me good. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't like it as like he got famous because yeah. of this. He's not yeah. into that. But it did change my life because everything seemed hostile to me. And it was very hurtful to my family, people who were, and I had, I make friends with everybody, but had made friends with people who I had never met before through my, the book and, or artwork. We had things there, people, when I had an art show, the things that people wrote, it moves me deeply to read that stuff and nobody else could right, see yeah. it, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. So, but to be elevated, I never, that's what I, I, I don't want to be in that way, you know. But I think the publication of the book definitely shifted the public's perception of you. That's definitely. exactly what happened. The public and the media too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you don't want to enter that world. But you're in there, you got to live in it. Yeah. You know, I don't want to run away. I'm not running from anything. Get churning up that queen. Um, So one last question. You said that you worked with a lot of people for this book, and now you and Jess are working. What is that process like? I I was alluding to it earlier. It's, It's very thrilling because the excitement and seeing her learning just like I told you, like I saw something in you right away. Oh, when I walked in. I see something like in her. Mm-hmm. She's very young. I got socks older than she is. Yeah. <laughs> and, but to see, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the growth of women because mm-hmm. I come from a family of a lot of women who Same. are nurturing and loving to me. And I went away from that. Mm-hmm. And to see where women now are a- capable 
of achieving things they never were able to do before. I even put my mother in that. And if Charlie used to see that uh, in her as well, try to get her to write things down. Mm -hmm. My mother was not down with the movement. But so she's emblematic in that sense and representative of women moving up in the world and having a say in how the world is run. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of faith in that. And But intelligence to me is a beauty. Yeah. And she's got a super intelligence and a heart that goes with it. And that's the other part of it. And so those are things that, like, we, we say to each other, but, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to see you. Like, we text. Uh -huh. Oh, I'm so excited. Can't wait to see you. <laughs> and that's how it is even when I see her. Yeah. Because, and I'm learning different things all the time. I learn, too. Mm -hmm. It's being around a person who is human and making the world a better place, which is probably one of the most important things to me yeah. uh, in, in life, you know, to see that, that I'm part of that with mm -hmm. her, and I want her, I wish she could go faster so I can <laughs> be there to see, see it. I want to be there when she gets a PhD. And, but, but I see her beyond that, mm. you know, like I introduced her, this is my granddaughter, but so much more. Yeah. You know, it's my child, my little child, <laughs> my grandmother. <laughs> and um, a lot of ways she mentors me without saying, I'm your mentor. Yeah. She doesn't think of it in that way. And that's her strength, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a strength, her intelligence, and beautiful mind and heart. And, uh, what she's doing with it. She's not letting it just go to waste yeah. as I did. Yeah. <laughs> I think now is a good time to do this. So this is one of the posters that your wife had made yeah. to like help your case while you were inside. The top part is a drawing. And do you want to explain what the drawing is at the top? The drawing is my first wife, Helene. And it's a representation, something like what I was feeling and the suffering. Mm -hmm. And it's not truly representative, but you see I'm all twisted up. I'm looking out into a dark light mm -hmm. world, but there's some light in it, you know? Okay, so then there's what I would call a poem, but there's writing on the second half of it is writing. And so, Jess, do you want to read a line? Like you two take turns reading lines. So you read a line, then Tommy reads a line. Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. Ready? Yeah. People who are isolated and oppressed create. First, because they have to. And second, because they must. People who are depressed and inhibited create. Because they do not think as much as they feel. Creation is not a ratiocinative process. People create because they feel what everyone else is thinking. That's what I've been trying to say. People create because they feel what everyone else is thinking. At least that's what I think. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that 
that can, I didn't even think it. See, that's very creative. Yeah. Malcolm's a genius. Yeah. That is, <laughs> that's just the thing. I'm Malcolm's you. a genius. <clears throat> I wish I had money to buy you a camera. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Works of Justice was produced by Malcolm Tariq. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's prison and justice writing team include Jess Abalafia, program assistant. Moira Marquis, senior manager, free write project. Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing. Robert Pollack, Prison Writing Program Manager. Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice.